Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June the 28th, 2017, and we are up all the way up to episode 2033 of the Survival Podcast. It's Wednesday, that's interview day. And I've got a good guest on. We've actually had this guest on before. His name is Benjamin Page, and he is uh, the the founder of Pasto Verde's Farm. He's also a chiropractor. He's here today to talk to us about farming, permaculture, modern survivalism, and what he calls the pillars of wellness. We'll be talking about all of that more in just a bit. Guys, right now, do you know I have personally about 100 trees, vines, and bushes from Bob Wells Nursery on my property? Over time, they will produce season after season of edible products. They look great, too. Bob Wells is always my first choice when buying new trees, vines, and shrubs for my permaculture work. Check them out at bobwellsnursery.com today. Hey, folks. When I started TSP over eight years ago now, the first company to ever offer to sponsor the show was SafeCastle. And they've remained a loyal sponsor ever since February of 2009. And did you know they give away a lifetime discount membership to all MSB members? They do. And that can save you big money on everything you could imagine for your prepping needs. And with SafeCastle, I do mean everything. Check out SafeCastle.com today to learn more. All right, and before we uh, get our special guest on, let's go ahead and uh, take a look at this year in history. This year in history will be the year 16 we are up to now. I have two contributions today, one from David Verne and one from Southpaw Ben. I have... Open Battles at Last from David Verne. Instead of marching all the way into the heart of Germania, Germanicus has used 1,000 ships to ferry 74,000 soldiers from Gaul to the mouth of the Rhine and traveled up the river. Arminius has decided he had to respond and tried to lure the legions into battle where they would be outnumbered. The battle lasted an entire day and ended with a decisive Roman victory. But Arminius managed to escape with several followers. He regrouped and received reinforcements at the Angaver Barrier, a large earthen wall built between the river and a marshland. Germanius was determined to finish the job, and after bombarding the wall with catapults, personally led the attack. The battle lasted several hours and ended with another crushing Roman victory, but Arminius escaped yet again. During a raid later in the summer, the legions recovered another eagle from the destroyed legions. My Take by David Verne. Everyone loved Germanius at this point. The Senate was giving him honor after honor. His soldiers loved him, and the Roman people saw him as a hero. Tiberius was becoming increasingly nervous about his nephew's fame and recalled him to Rome. This will continue to be a theme throughout Roman history, where rulers become paranoid of their skilled generals and end up not letting them do their job. Most of the time, the generals are loyal but end up having to become as skilled in political strategy as military strategy. And I see a big flaw in this. I think many of these generals that ended up actually being political problems for emperors in early Rome were such because of the Roman emperor's actions, such as recalling them to Rome, where they actually were in the middle of the fray. As long as they're out doing their job, they're not really a political threat, so you don't like that they're doing their job and getting to be real popular. And it comes down to what the biggest problem the elites have always had has been. At least the elites that seem to be the rulers. They're jealous of each other. They're infinitely jealous assholes, as most psychopaths and sociopaths are. And the reality is, if someone actually is a good general, generally they want to do that job And many of these men wanted to do their job long enough to be released from service and then go live somewhere and be left alone. When a man spends time in battle, he craves most peace. 
not the floor of the Senate to be worshipped by senators as an emperor. Next up, I have, I think I'm saying this right, Epistole ex Ponto is published. Epistole, I would say, is from the same root as epistle or writing. Uh, this year, Ovid's book of poetry is published. Epistole ex Ponto means letters from the Black Sea. And it is poetry from during his time in exile. While most of what he wrote about was pleading for his exile to be ended, today it is one of the only sources of information about the Cynthia Minor and parts of current-day Bulgaria and Romania during that era. My take by Southpaw Ben. This book goes to show how even an insignificant thing we do today could have huge ramifications in the future that we'd never expected. When Orvid wrote this poetry, he would never have imagined it being the main source of information on the area he was in at the time. He was simply bemoaning his fate and trying to convince the ruler to overturn his punishment. Throughout history, we see many examples of insignificant, at least at the time of their creation, writings becoming massively important to our knowledge and understanding of the past, often being analyzed way more than the author ever intended. It also serves to remind us that the writings that we base some of our historical knowledge on today could easily have been equivalents of a Karl Marx or Adolf Hitler, and we never know that it was an extremely fringe interpretation of events skewed toward a specific worldview because it's the only first-person record we have of that time and era. And you would think that today this would be less true because today everything everybody is writing is being recorded essentially forever. I mean, even when websites go down and what have you, we have a, a site called the Wayback Machine, right? Archive.org, I believe, is the site. And, like, bl a blog that I had at one time that, like, basically crashed and I didn't think it was worth restoring, there was a couple times I needed an article that I wrote back then, basically to say, hey, look, I did write this article in 2004. And, you know, I go to archive.org and all of that information is still there, even though the site itself is gone. So you would think that today it would be less important to worry about what you write or have you know one person's view, but the reality is with more sources of information, each one of them has the potential to surface at some point in the future and be used in the future. Everything we leave behind today will be left behind to future generations. That's good, but we should be mindful about it when we're putting things online. My take by Jack Spierko. All right, folks, let me remind you that the main way that you can support the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast is by joining the Member Support Brigade, or MSB for short. And you hear me talk all the time about the over 60 discounts that you get, but let me tell you some of the other things you get. How about nine free ebooks, including Planting Trees the Low Cost Easy Way, How to Build Top Bar Beehives, Basics of Sprouting, Building an EPAC Kit, Getting Your Household in Order, Building a Traditional Clay Oven, Building Aquaponic Systems, Secrets of Ballistic Strikings, and Squanto's Garden. All of those are free ebooks that you get only as an MSB member. You can also download MP4 versions of many of our YouTube videos. You get zip files of every episode of TSP ever produced. And how about videos of the workshops here at Nine Mile Farm that we do in the spring and the fall? All of that and more available as an MSB member. You can sign up for as little as five bucks a month to give it a shot or $50 a year. That comes out to 18.3 cents an episode. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get into it. Let's introduce our special guest today. His name is Benjamin Page. He started listening to the Survival Podcast in July 2008 while going to chiropractic college in Davenport, Iowa. He lived five miles from college and rode his bike to college. It took him, uh, depending on the season, 15 to 45 minutes to get to college. He used his time to listen to the Survival Podcast and learn about modern survivalism, now considers himself to be a modern survivalist. He's been on the show before. He's here to talk to us today about the pillars of wellness modern survivalism, and more. 
With that, I want to say, hey, Ben, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm super stoked to actually be back on the show, even though last show was not really the, didn't really get, uh, what, what do you call it? We didn't actually get, gremlins. yeah, yeah, we didn't, we had some problems, but I'm glad to be back. Well, we won't have that this time, man. Um, so <clears> the audience can kind of connect with you. Um, by trade, you're a chiropractor, and I've kind of introduced the audience to you and your background with the show going all the way back to 2008. But let's let's go back from there. Let's go back to, to, to you know, Ben is in high school trying to figure out what we'll do with his life, and how does that path lead you to chiropractic, just so they can get an idea of who you are as a person. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, oh. When I was a kid, I always loved being outside and helping people. Um, I had that type of a lifestyle where I'm lucky that my parents lived in a place where I could be outside basically all the time and always be playing outside and always be helping. If I wasn't helping my parents in the garden, I was helping somebody else. It was just a great lifestyle that I can't, I can't complain about. Maybe at the time I complained because I wanted to play more than help, but <laughs> I look at it now and I was like, wow, what a great life I had as a kid. But as I started to grow up, that, that stayed with me and I just loved helping people. And I got to the point where in high school I had to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, I was finishing high school. <clears throat> and I, excuse me, sorry about that. I was planning on going into medical school. I was actually planning to become a medical doctor. And the reason was because I really wanted to help people in what we call underdeveloped countries. So I was planning on becoming a doctor and then just in going to these underdeveloped countries and help these people that don't really have any type of medicine or any type of medical help, really. So that was my initial plan. My initial plan was to do that, become a medical doctor and, and just go to all these underdeveloped countries and just, and just help out in as much as I could, kind of like a Peace Corps. Doctors Without Borders type of thing, right? Exactly. That's what I was planning at the beginning. But then then I got to know my wife. <laughs> and that kind of changed things up a little. I was like, well, I'm not going to do that because my wife is probably not going to want to go travel and, and live in these countries for long periods of time. So I started actually talking to my brother-in-law. He's a chiropractor. And he actually started to talk to me about chiropractic philosophy. And it actually intrigued me. So I actually started studying medical philosophy, uh, modern medical philosophy, and what is chiropractic philosophy. And it's funny that I've, I've been living the chiropractic philosophy since, I'm a young, since I was a very young kid. Like I, just, like I was talking about, as, as a kid, I, was, I never went to the doctor. I was always out playing. I, 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 if I ever did get sick, I mean, I would just... I would just wait it out. I mean, I never had to. I never went to the. Do I went to the doctor twice in my whole life. It was for a broken bone that I got on my birthday because I decided not to go to school and I'd start rolling down a hill and busted my wrist. And then when my brother ran, when I was getting chased by my brother, and I ran into the edge of the piano and I had to get stitches above my eye. Those are the only two times. So emergencies, and that's for me. That's that's what that's what modern medicine's for is for those emergencies that well, I need something done now. And those are the two times I went. So that's that's the main reason why I ended up going to chiropractic college was for that was to help people, and I thought this was the best way I could actually help people through the through treating them through the chiropractic philosophy, the chiropractic paradigm. Very cool. And so tell people a little bit about like when you were going to school as a chiropractor and how TSP kind of came into your life during that time. Exactly. Yeah. I mean. The TSP has actually been a big influence on my life and who I am actually today. I mean, it's crazy. In 2009 is when I actually started listening to, uh, no, 
No, 2008 is actually when I started listening to the Survival Podcast. I was in I was in college. I was in chiropractic college. I was in Palmer and Davenport. And I was talking to some other students. Actually, it was me and one other student. And he started talking. We started talking about political things. We, at that time, everyone knows politically the United States was going downhill. And soon after was that huge uh, bubble, uh, the housing collapse. And we were talking what was going to happen and everything like that. And he's like, hey, um, I got a book I think you'd like to read. And he actually gave me the book Patriots. So that was, that's what kind of actually brought me back into this this whole modern survivalism realm. At that time, it wasn't. I just thought about survivalism, and I say brought me back because I lived it my whole life. I pretty much lived this. It just kind of lost me over the years, but I lived it throughout my life basically. But during college, I read that book and it really got me interested. And then I started checking stuff online, and that's how I found the Survival Podcast. And and what I do is, in that time, we didn't have smartphones. So what I had to do is I had to take my iPod, I had to download the episodes on my iPod, and then I'd listen to them while I rode my book, my bike to school. So I had to, I rode my bike, and it all depends. During the summer, it probably would have taken me about 15 minutes to get to. To get to school, and during the winter, with all the snow and the ice, it took me about 45 minutes. And I'd take that time, and then I'd listen to the survival podcast, and that helped me a lot to get back to who I am today, to get back to my roots. So, in Iowa, is when I planted my first garden again with my wife in the backyard of that little fourplex that we had. It was all planter boxes and and flower pots that I had that I had found in the side of the street that I built or put and planted my first vegetables again and and from there it just kept on growing and growing and growing. So a lot of who I am today is is thanks actually to what I learned at in chiropractic school. Not not just chiropractic, but how it brought me back to what is modern survivalism and and the way I'm living today. So it was it was actually a, a really neat experience. And yeah, I've been listening to you since like I said, two thousand eight. Yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah, definitely. That's a, that makes you a very early adopter since the show actually started in 2008. If you you want to start feeling a little old, dude, that was nine <laughs> years ago. So we had our we had our ninth year anniversary on the 20th of this month. It's it's. Uh, it's I gotta say, it's the longest I've ever done any one thing in my life. <laughs> it's crazy. I know. I mean, I I think I started listening to you at episode six. Wow. I think if if I can remember correctly, I think the first episode I listened to you on my bike riding from my house to school was actually episode six. Yeah. Very cool, very cool. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's back when the episodes were like twenty five minutes long or something. But um, so you have something you call the pillars of wellness. Before we get into that, how do you feel now after you know nine years of, of Spirico brainwashing uh, in modern <laughs> survivalism? How does modern survivalism enter into those pillars of wellness? Exactly. That's a beautiful question. And to tell you the truth, I've actually, I think I've matured while you listen, have you matured politically and stuff that through, through your, through these years that you've been talking about, uh, preparedness and stuff like that. I would, a lot of the things that, that you talk about, yeah, I mean, I, I think very similarly in, at least politically and stuff like that. I mean, like I say, you've been a, you've been a pretty big, uh, you've been a big support. Truly, because there's so many people not like me, and it's good to listen to someone that actually is like me. Because <laughs> kind of, there's so many people that are so much different. But, but yeah, as as I started learning more about modern survivalism, I started learning about health. I learned that one of the major killers, 
and most people know this now is is actually the stress response. Not the stress, not the acute stress response. The acute stress response is actually very important for our health. And if we're not stressed acutely, we'll probably never reach our health potential, which I'll talk about a little bit later. But going back to what modern survivalism has and what it can do for our health is it it helps us prepare prepare for those stressful moments. Who cares if they come or they don't? It helps us prepare no matter what. If we're prepared, we're going to be less stressed. So what does? Let's talk a little bit about what the stress response actually does. So there's there's a couple of things that the stress response actually does that causes so much havoc. First of all, it's going to it's going to cause our heart rate to go up and it's constrict our our arteries. So that's why we usually see that that increase in blood pressure. So most people are thinking, why do I have blood pressure? Well, it's probably because you've been chronically stressed for so many years. And if you can decrease stress, normally your body will decrease your overall blood pressure. But not only that, it increases cholesterol <clears throat> for a very intelligent reason. So it increases in, in, in cholesterol because, well, when we're stressed, normally when our, our ancestors were stressed, they were usually having to fight or run. So there was a high chance of them getting injured. We need cholesterol when we get injured, it helps in the, in the recuperation and the repair. And also cholesterol is needed for the stress hormones that are going to be spiked. And that's one of the reasons why it raises blood pressure because we need those hormones. We need the, we need the energy substrate now. So that's why it raises the blood pressure so we can get to the places that we go and that it needs to be now. So we can actually do what it needs to do to, to get, to get away from danger or fight our way out of danger. <clears throat> but at the same time, it, it starts to release it starts to release the, the stored fatty acids for energy, the glucose, so all the stored glucose that we had becomes stored, and we start to use that as energy, but also our bodies begin to crave that because we know we need a lot of energy. So what do we crave when we become stressed? Fats and sugars. Sugar gets turned into saturated fat. We don't use enough of it, and that's why we see so much problems with, with obesity and diabetes and all that other stuff. Another thing... Insulin, we, the insulin receptors go way down because we need we need the sugar in the blood. So we have a lot of insulin in the blood. So, like I say, with cholesterol, same thing. So physically, we see tons of changes in our life as we become stressed. And this is physically, mental, spiritual, it all is the same. But being able to prepare for things that normally do happen. I mean, it's going to happen once or twice in our life. We know things that they're just going to happen. So it's better just prepare. We see all those physical changes, but we also see a lot of mental changes also. So he changes with the amygdala, with the hypo, the hippocampus. So working memory, it's going to go way down. And I can even use this as an example with me. So this working memory, I remember when I was going through school, it became pretty stressful at the time. And I remember it got harder to remember things throughout in to, to remember things for the tests and everything like that because it was, it was just a highly stressed environment. We had tests almost weekly and then we had to study for, for final exams and, and national exams and just all sorts of things. And it was a stressful moment and I was sleeping a lot less because I had to study. I wasn't finding enough time during the day to study for the tests. And I remember those times. It was, it was harder for me to retain information and when we're stressed, it happens like that. And we are also a lot more instinctual. So a lot of the things we're going to be, our emotions and everything like that, it becomes more instinctual. And it just causes havoc on what we are uh, physiologically. And there's a lot more that has to do with, with the whole mental aspect of what stress is. So like I'm saying, if, we're, if we are willing 
to use these tenets that you call uh, of modern survival, modern survivalism, we're, we're actually able to decrease overall stress, even if it does happen or if it does, if or it doesn't. It doesn't matter. Overall, being prepared, we're going to have less chronic stress in our bodies. Now, the importance Hold on of, real quick. That's an interesting thing you bring up there because I actually find that stress is generally greater when people are worried about something happening than when it actually happens. Right? And, so, so being prepared, like you're heading that off, but like it, it amazes me that people are so stressed that something might happen. And when you actually examine it, you're like, you know, if this did happen, is it, is it the end of the world? You know, I deal that with my, 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 my son who's, you know, in his late 20s now, still like worried about shit. And it's like, dude, if that happens, it's not that big. It's not good, but it's not that big a deal. And I think in our head, what could happen tends to be worse than what actually does happen, even if those are the same things. Like, you're worried you could lose your job. And the nightmare scenario you create in your head with that is actually worse than, well, you know, I was looking for a job and I found this one kind of thinking. Exactly. Oh, yeah, the whole mental aspect, yeah. I mean, usually we, we make the problem a lot worse than it will ever be internally. And if we just, and, and that's what's cool about being prepared. I mean, if we are prepared about it, there's a lot less thinking about it. We don't have to, it, 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 and even if we do think, if the worst does happen, we don't have, we don't worry as much because, again, worrying is, is what is going to cause us stress. But if we're, if we're, if we're thinking about future events or if we're, or if we're pondering about past events, it causes the exact same thing as, 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 as passing through a stressful moment in the moment. It's, it causes the exact same changes physiologically. But yeah, you're completely true. A lot of the times we, w- we way over-exaggerate what would really happen if, we, if that event actually did occur. And it's never as bad as we think it really is. There's, there's, a, there's some pretty good sayings uh, there's some by Seneca and, and Stoicism about, about that, how it's, it's a lot of times when we think what's really going to happen, it, it's never as bad as it really is. It makes me think of like a little kid that's going to go get a shot. Right? Mm. Look, kid's got to go get a shot, and it, it's just like he acts like you're going to take him in, and Freddy Krueger's going to shove one of those, you know, giant things into his forehead and extract his brain or something. And he, you know, is terrified, and then he gets a shot, and it's like, well, that wasn't so bad. And I, exactly. I think we laugh at that as parents, you know, but then a lot of us just turn around and, 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 and recreate that behavior in other things. And that, that I do think is highly addressed by preparedness because now you already feel like well that could happen but i know what i would do if it did and therefore i don't have to worry about it as much and it's like you know you talk about the death of a thousand cuts or if you get enough tiny little cuts you can bleed to death well i guess the other side of that is is you can actually patch up or repair things with tiny patches and each one of those little pieces it's less stress and less worry that's cumulative over over a day a week and a lifetime and that could be a massive amount of stress reduction. And stress, I personally think, is the number one killer in the world. I think that even a lot of people that get cancer or whatever, some of them wouldn't have got cancer without stress because their body wouldn't have been stressed and they wouldn't have been susceptible to it. Or they would have made it through without stress. Or same with heart attack and everything. And I'm not saying stress is a direct cause, but stress is like this massive aggravating factor in, in all human illness and, and, and disease. Yep. All I would, and I would say I would go to say that you're you're more than correct. I mean, all metabolic disease. I think all metabolic disease. We're talking heart problems. We're talking diabetes. We're talking cancers. We're talking autoimmune disease. We're talking all of these 
metabolic diseases that were, by the way, they were not seen hardly ever just a hundred years ago. I mean, they were present, but very few, I mean, cancer was, but a lot of these other metabolic diseases were just not known of in more than a hundred years ago. Um, they're all. So, I mean, we, yeah, a lot of cancers can be prevented. I know that's hard for a lot of people to hear because like, no, um, I lived a clean life and I know someone that got cancer. But we have to live a purely clean life. Uh, it, it's all this, and it all, it all does get back to a chronic stress response. It's, and, it, and we need to realize that it's chronic. It's, it's not acute. Like I was saying, acute stress is actually something that's very, very important. And talking about acute stress, I mean, if we do actually don't have acute stressful moments, it's actually we actually can't reach our health potential. Talking about acute stress, so today acute stress would be like, like me talking on your show. I mean, you'll, you'll feel a little anxious before you go on the show. I mean, I mean, whenever you get in front of a lot of people, or I'm not even in front of a lot of people, but I know a lot of people will probably listen to this, will feel a little anxious. That's actually normal. That's just our body telling us, you can do this, so don't worry about it. You can do this. You're going to be able to finish this, go out and tear it up or crush it, however people like to say it. But So these moments are actually very important. And if we do these moments and don't make them, don't make them prolonged, we'll actually become a lot more Healthy. There's actually been things that shown. There's actually been some studies shown that when we're acutely stressed and we think about it in the right manner, like this is actually helping me uh, get through this stressful moment. So this short moment that's going to be short-lived, then I'll return to normal. It actually shows that when we, when the yeah, our heart will start to pump more, but actually the arteries won't constrict. Or in other words, it's actually the same feeling that we of, of joy. When we feel a lot of joy, our heart rate will go up, but our, our arteries won't constrict. There's other things that's shown that oxy, oxytocin, oxytocin, which is a hormone that a lot of people know about, but they don't know that it's also a stress hormone. And it, what this what this hormone does is just is it's, it's incredible. It actually it's the hormone that. That helps us. That helps us want to be helped by other people. And us being as humans, we're, we're people of community. We, we we need to have people around us. So when we're stressed, at times when we actually need help, we secrete this hormone so we can actually get closer and want to be closer to other people, so they can help us in these stressful moments. It's also found that oxytocin helps the heart recuperate. So our body, knowing that we're going to have to pump more blood, knowing that we're going to have to use this muscle just a little bit more, it actually releases this, this hormone to help it repair during those short, acute, stressful moments. So, so we need to realize that acute stress is very important. And if we have those acute, stressful moments that we all are going to have, like me just barely, or I, I say in my book sometimes, when people are, people are waiting in my waiting room for the first time to be treated by chiropractic, that's... That, 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 what you're feeling is normal. Don't worry about it. That's you getting ready for the moment and it's you being healthy. So don't worry about it. And these are all good things. So acute stress is actually very, very important. Chronic stress. Chronic stress is what causes all, pretty much all metabolic disease. <clears throat> gotcha. So you have something you call the four pillars of health and wellness. What are those? Ah. So what I call them, so the first one, we just, is I call nutrient dense food grown on fertile soil without chemicals. That's the first pillar. The second pillar would be chiropractic care, 
which we'll be talking about. And then the third pillar is actually, I call natural internal dialogue. And then the fourth pillar I call adequate movement. And with adequate movement, I also involve its companion, which I call adequate, adequate uh, rest or adequate sleep. So those would be the four pillars of what we're looking for to truly find our health potential. Gotcha, gotcha. So you, you mentioned movement in that. What can we do to achieve movement and proper posture? So I guess that would be part of, of that. Oh, yeah, posture also has to do with a lot with movement. If we're, not, if we're not, so movement, first of all, yeah, so movement, it doesn't, like, it doesn't have to be you have to go to the gym or you have to be, do, go to some class or anything like that. If we look to our ancestors, I mean, there was no such thing as gyms. There's no such thing as Zumba classes or, or all that stuff that people are inherently doing nowadays. It's not, it's not that we have to go to the gym to move more. But if you are living a sedentary lifestyle, which unfortunately the majority of the world is, we're sitting – we're basically sitting all day. So we, we wake up, we sit down to eat breakfast, we get into a car to sit down, to drive to work, to sit down for another eight to nine hours. We get back in that car to sit down, to go back to a home where we sit down on a couch and probably watch TV for three hours because we're so tired we don't want to do anything else. So a lot of sitting, and that's pre- and I'm, the majority of people can actually relate to that in some way. So that this type of and us as humans, we weren't made to sit. Uh, we're actually we're as humans, our genetic code is is for us to move. So if we're not moving, there's no middle ground. We're actually getting sicker. So we need to be very careful about movement. And it doesn't have to be, like I said, you don't have to go to the gym or something like that. I mean, movement, natural movement. So movement where you're moving many muscles at the same time. Movement where you're moving many, many different things at the same time. Because as we see a lot of times when we're in the gym, we're using either two or three muscles at a time. Natural movements, when we're moving and using almost all our muscles, and usually always our trunk, so the, the most important part is almost always flexed. So, if But if you are stuck behind a desk, I mean, rigorous movement is very important. We're talking maybe an hour of rigorous movement because it's that important. But if you work and you're outside a lot and you're always moving, it's that's not as important. It's not as important to, to have that rigorous movement where you're actually moving rigorously. Your, your heart rate's getting up quite a bit. Because that's how our ancestors lived. They were outside. They were working. They did have some moments like chopping wood, one of my favorite things to do, which would definitely raise your heart rate. But they didn't have to, they didn't have to do it all day. I mean, they didn't do it all day. They did for those, those short times. And then they'd continue to work, but they're always, always moving. So what we need to do is just, is just move more. It's not as much as exercise. It's just move more. And today it's been lost. I mean, most people, why do they move more? Why do, they, why do people go exercise? Either to improve sports performance, uh, to lose weight, or to look better. Yeah, those definitely. Those are three. Excuse me. <clears throat> Yeah, those are the three. Those are the three reasons not to do it. <laughs> the reason to move more is for your own health. Because, if, like I said before, if we're not moving, we're we're actually moving downwards on the scale of health. We're not getting any healthy. So we have to be moving. So such important. And, and then you talking about posture. Posture is that micro trauma that we just don't know is happening. But over years and years and years of the bad posture, we put stress on our joints, and we know what stress does. So the stress on the joints is just a mechanical stressor, which will activate ex- the exact same stress response that our thoughts will activate or some type of other stressor will activate the stress response. So say a posture, and posture is lost completely. And every year we're starting to notice that it's worse and worse and worse. 
And, it, and it's funny, all these things are so natural. All these things are so natural. I remember I was here with my family, and one of my, one of my nephews, no, excuse me, one of my nieces, they were sitting on our, on our stairs, and our stairs don't have backs. It's just, it's just wood, one, of, one, one above another. And she was sitting there. And she had, her, she had her chin tucked in, her chest was out, and you could see she had her proper lumbar spine curve, and everything would look so perfect. And she just sat there. And I, and I was like, and it wasn't for like seconds, it was for, it, was for a, it was for a long period of time where she actually sat there. I was like, oh my goodness, that's how we should all be sitting, and she just does it naturally. What happened? What happened? And through time, we lose this proper posture, and we just have we, we, this micro-trauma of constant bad posture over years will cause physical symptoms. And as a chiropractic physician, what I see usually is between 30 and 60 years People will come and see me, and they'll have no they'll have no idea why they're feeling pain. Just have no idea at all. And it's usually for that bad posture from all those many years. So yeah, posture movement incredibly important. And the companion to movement, sleep. Uh, nowadays, people think that if you sleep enough hours, you're lazy. Because we have so much we have so much to do that you better not sleep. You better sleep less. You can get everything done. But the exact opposite happens is we know when we sleep less, we're not as productive, we're not as kind, we don't, we don't get enough work, and we don't get the work done that's, that's supposed to get done the right way. I mean, we just, we know we're not as productive when we're, when we're, when we're tired. But not sleeping is so much more than that. I mean, it's not just the productivity throughout the day. It's, it's been shown that if we're not sleeping throughout the night, which adults should be getting between seven to eight hours of sleep. Um, and, well, if you're sleeping, if you actually get a high-quality sleep, you can probably get away with six. But it's usually they try to – you want to sleep in 90-minute in increments, so it would be seven and a half hours is what you truly want to get because, because our sleep cycle runs at 90 minutes. So seven and a half hours is, is what should truly be aimed for. In sleep. Some people go for nine. Some people won't be able to function, and some people sleep for nine hours. But it's been shown that a lot of things happen during our sleep. And one of the most important things, actually, is, is the cleaning of all the byproducts that, that happens in our brain when we, when we think throughout the day. So we have a lymphatic system that kind of helps us get rid of all the, all the byproducts of, of, of metabolism throughout the, the cellular metabolism. And, it, and the, the lymphatic system helps us get rid of all that or reuse it. A lot of it gets reused. But the brain, we can't because it's actually we have that, that blood-brain barrier where the lymphatic system isn't through. So how do we get how do we get rid of all the the byproducts of all that neural metabolism that happens throughout in the brain throughout the day? Well, it's been shown that our brain has its like its own lymphatic system. It's called the glyphatic system. It has the G in front for the glial cells that kind of help it and keep it moving, kind of help it. And what happens is these cells, these this lymphatic system actually is running ten times more potent during 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 sleeping during while we're sleeping. So the majority of the cleaning of our brain to get us ready for the next day happens at nighttime. And not only that, they've shown that the cells of the brain actually reduce in size sixty percent. So it actually it's actually a lot more efficient in its job when we're sleeping. So one major reason to, to get a good night's rest is to wake up refreshed and have our brain ready for the next day. Uh, but not only that, there's there's so many things about Sleep that we need to that, that for reasons why we need to sleep more, and that's why I call it the companion. Because if we're moving, 
and we're moving adequately all day, every day we're doing that, but if we're not getting rest, our body's not assimilating that movement. And the same thing, if we're, not, if we're not getting enough rest, we won't be able to move during the day. So it's like a companion. We have to work at, 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 on both of them, make sure we're getting enough rest. And a lot of people say we don't have enough time. And I usually say, well, we all have enough time. We all have the exact we all have the exact same amount of time. It's just how we plan our days and how we find time to do what's really important. So, and other, and not only that, but hormones. I mean, geez, if we're not sleeping right, I mean, we have an increase in cortisol, which is a, which we, we know causes havoc. It's one of those catecholamines, one of the stress hormones that cause havoc. We'll have, we'll have. Cortisol, cortisol high during the end of the day when it's supposed to be low and, and low at the beginning of the day when it's supposed to be high. We're, we're, we'll have the sleep hormone melatonin. It's, it's, it's going to be way out of whack. I mean, we're not going to be able to... So all these hormones that are super important in the immune response and all these things through our, through our natural internal clock, they won't be able to work as they're supposed to be working. And overall, we just lose. We just lose health if we're not resting. Resting is, is so important. And it's a companion of, of movement. We can't live with one without the other. They have to be together. You know, you got a lot in there. And it, what it makes me think of is I've, I've looked at a lot of studies on aboriginal people, you know, uh, hunter-gatherers, societies that are still around. And you mentioned two things, movement and sleep. These people do not tie rocks to a tree stump and lift it in the air to build up their biceps. They, they don't do that. I, I've yet to find any of them to do or grab onto a tree and start doing pull-ups or you know have their buddy hold their ankles while they do sit-ups or something like that. Um, they do an awful lot of sleeping, an awful lot of moving, an awful lot of stretching, and, an, and an awful lot of um, social engagement with each other, telling stories, etc. Like their main physical activities would be hunting and gathering, which you know obviously that uses the whole body, like you were saying. Um, occasionally, you know, some big giant creature comes out, and they have to have that fight or flight response. Uh, sometimes they have conflicts with other bands, and they have to have that flight, fight, flight or flight response. But most of the time, they're in a pretty low key attitude because making a living as a hunter gatherer. Where the resources exist, it's actually pretty easy. It only requires a few hours of work a day. There are other physical activities, usually some form of dance, right? So they have some sort of dance. It's very ritual. It usually happens, a lot of these places happens every night around a fire or something like that. Um, and they spend an awful lot of their days maybe moving, but then they also spend a lot of their time resting and stretching. And the food that they're eating is as natural as it can be because it's what they can hunt and gather and store naturally in their situation. And if you contrast that to uh, a person living in the modern society and what we think of as normal, normal is the most non-normal way a human being can exist. You couldn't have said it better. <laughs> I'd tell that you know, we are living in absolutely the most abnormal lifestyle that a human being has ever lived. The, the last 150 years has has changed the way us as humans live, live, but completely. So for thousands and thousands of years, we've lived in a certain way. And in just in 150 years, not just movement and not just, not, not just interaction with others, but the food we eat, I mean, the, everything, everything has changed completely in the last 150 years. And uh, I always say that we are, because if you look at it, animals, if you see an animal in the wild, they're healthy. But what happens if you cage up an animal? It becomes 
just like a human, a sick human. It gets all the same sicknesses as a human. The worst thing about it is that us as humans have actually opened up the cage door. We've walked in. We've closed that door. We locked that key. We locked the door with the key, and we threw the key out. I mean, we, we're causing this all to ourselves for the for for supposedly because we have all this this modern lifestyle. But if we look at it, every year we've had every year we have. More doctors, more hospitals, more drugs, more surgery, more nurses, and every year we're becoming more and more sick. I mean, people are starting to come around. We're seeing changes, but as it's, you're completely right. We're living in a we're living in a society where we're not living as humans anymore. We're living as caged animals. What you're touching on there is that we don't have a healthcare industry in this country. There's not a lot of money in healthcare. I mean, that sounds crazy, but when you think of what we really have, we have a sick care industry, right? You make money by treating sick people. You don't make money by keeping people healthy. Now, people said yourself that are chiropractors, dude, that's actually what you do. But what I'm talking about is if you are a mega corporation, there is not a lot of money in healthy people. But there's a ton of money in sick people. So if something's profitable, you're going to have more of it. And, and that's where I think we are. And I know that sounds a little conspiratorial or whatever, but if you look at the me, the modus operandi of just, let's say, the pharmaceutical industry, they need a new drug every year to stay profitable and growing because that you know that drug in 18 years or whatever will come off being patent protected. So they have to keep adding these and kind of prime. It's like a sales funnel, right? When you're in sales and you say, well, I made my quota this month, your sales manager says, that's nice. What's your funnel look like for next month? Because what you did last month doesn't matter anymore. It's gone. And, and that's, that's just how business works. And we've, we've industrialized caring for illness. We have not industrialized keeping people healthy. Well, yeah, it's completely sick care. And it's been like that since the infamous report of 1910. Yeah, that infamous report that was, that was written by, who was it? That, that high school teacher, he went around, he was, I mean, and talking about conspiracy, I mean, conspiracy, I'm not talking about, but the, the, this high school teacher, what was this report called? I wish, oh my goodness, it, it left my mind. But this, this high school teacher was, was, was uh, given the contract by uh, Rockefeller Foundation and the Carnegie Foundation. We certainly know that the Rockefeller Foundation had a ton to do with the pharmaceuticals, <clears throat> and they still do have a ton to do with the pharmaceuticals. So they hired this guy to go around to all the medical schools and kind of make up a curriculum so all the medical schools would teach the exact same thing. And what was the major, what was the major thing taught in these, in these new medical schools? And if you didn't, if you didn't make that curriculum where you were closed down, well, there's a lot of what was about pharmaceuticals. This all happened in 1910. And since then we've seen, yeah, a huge increase in the use of pharmaceuticals. And not only that, we see that now that Monsanto bought Bayer. Well, Monsanto is the one with the seed company that's using all the chemicals to help people stay sick so then they can give them medication <laughs> to they can, get, they can get them on a medication for the rest of their life. Yeah, and most people most people unfortunately believe that if they're on a medication they're going to be on it for the rest of their life. It's it's completely wrong. Um, health and that's what you're right. It's, it's sick care. It's complete sick care. So when we're when we're looking at it, they make all the money when they have people on a on a on a medication for the rest of their life. Really? It's not just for not just for not just for an episodic 
just not for a period of time, but for the rest of your life. And people at younger ages, they're giving, they're giving ADD medication to kids that are like seven years of age. I mean, that's, that's seven years until their death. Of course, they're going to die a lot younger because they're going to be completely unhealthy because they start them so young. But even, even that's, that's, a, that's a long, long time on one drug. So that's what they're trying to do. And what we need to realize is drug, we never lack Drugs. We never have a. We never need drugs to recuperate. N- never. Yeah, I always so say we, that a headache is not a deficiency in aspirin, nor Tylenol, nor Advil. Right? It's not and, a deficiency and, in any of those things. That's not what a headache is. And not even in chiropractic. A lot of people go to chiropractors because they have a headache, but it's not a. It's it's not because you lack chiropractic care either. Yeah, you're completely you're completely right. It's none of that stuff. It's it's something that's a lot more internal. You have to get to the the primary cause of what's causing that headache, but. What was I talking? I was talking the, this whole stay on medication for the for the rest of your life and everything like that. Modern medicine—that's what they're trying to do. And I have to say, and a lot of people listening to this will probably say, "Well, I'm in, I'm completely against modern medicine." Of course not. No, modern medicine has done miracles in saving lives of millions and millions and millions of people. My son is actually a product of this miracle called modern medicine. But we need to understand the roles of both of them. Modern medicine is awesome and does a great job on emergencies and crisis and we need to use them when we're in an emergency or in a crisis that means if we're going to take a pill it needs to be for a very short period of time to get us through that crisis or that emergency so we can go back to living a normal healthy life or qual- or whatever accident or emergency that we're, that we're going through unfortunately a lot of these accidents and emergencies and crises could be prevented if we would put just a little bit more time into our health and actually make it an investment instead of making it a cost down the road when we actually have some type of emergency or a crisis so me as a as a as a wellness practitioner i work more in 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 health not sick care i try to help people stay healthy return to health but my my primary cause is to help people Stay healthy, um, sure. and that's and that's why they, they come and see me often because I'm I'm the person that's helping them stay healthy, stay on that true course, and then so 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 wellness practitioners or health practitioners, yeah, you want to see often, but medical or so if you're, like I say in medical or modern medicine, you want to you want to use as little as possible just for crises and emergencies. But they, yeah, it's very important that we have it because it saves it has saved millions of lives, and and usually it looks cool to so make a lot of movies about it. But the lives I'm saving, it's pretty boring and it takes time. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not, it's not as cool. Just for people that want to look it up, I think that report you were talking about that goes out to Carnegie is the Flexner report. Flexion report, perfect, thanks. Yep, that's yeah. what it was. The Flexion report, the infamous Flexion report of 1910. Yep, thank yeah. you. <laughs> so if people want to look that up, they can. It's, it's pretty interesting stuff. Um, moving on, I mean, another issue, we've talked about movement and posture. What about diet? I mean, if you look at what the average person eats today, it is absolute garbage. And the garbage is worse garbage. And what I mean by that is, is like, when I was a little kid, I loved crunchy Cheetos. There's still a guilty pleasure now on occasion. I know it's toxic poison. But the, to- the toxic poison that was a crunchy Cheeto in 1980 is, is, is far more a toxic poison in 2017. Even the bad stuff is worse, and we eat more of it. So what does a diet in wellness consist of? Oh, man, I know. I, I mean, it's, it's incredible where our modern food system has got. Uh, yeah, it's in... 
incredible. It's hard to even fathom what it's gotten to. I mean, I, I always go back to what our ancestors ate because our ancestors were incredibly healthy. And I'm not even talking about our Paleolithic ancestors. I'm talking about four or five generations back. I mean, we don't even have to go back that far. I mean, I can go back to my grandparents. So the first supermarket came around in about the year 1946. So where did we get all of? And this is this is actually a quote from Joel Salton, one of my favorite regenerative farmers. I mean, this Joel Salton is just beyond smart. But he he wrote about that. He's like the the first supermarket was in 1946. So where do we get our food before then? We got them in our gardens, in the fields, in the in in the forests and and our cellars. I mean, we got it locally. We got it. It was it was all stuff that came around locally, and it was freshly produced. And that's why it's really hard for older people to understand the system that we're in now. Because when they were young, they would go to the they'd go to buy some some produce, and it was actually healthy produce. It wasn't what it is today. It's laced in chemicals and without any nutrition. So that's why that's why I say we need to get nutrient-dense food that's grown on fertile soils because if the soil is not alive, there's no nutrition in the food. There's no nutrition in the food because the bacteria is what helps the roots assimilate all the vitamins and the minerals that are in the, that are in the dirt that's going to make us healthy people. So soil that's alive without chemicals because now we know the chemi- I mean, we're seeing more and more come out, but chemicals like glyph- glyphosate and all this stuff, it's, it's causing havoc on our dis- digestive system. So we have to eat foods without chemicals. The majority of our diet should be vegetables. It should be. I, I recommend 65% vegetables and the other 40%, well, 60% vegetables, 40% meats, fats, and nuts, and, and fruits. And little grain. And the problem with grain is it's it's not just the grain because we can go back a couple thousand years and, and people ate grain. It was usually porridge. So they'd take the wheat berry and they would just grind it up and put water in it and they'd eat it. And that's what they did. It wasn't that good, but they did. And what happened is from what I've read is that one day some guy left that porridge and six, seven days later started to ferment. And he decided to cook it, and it became bread. It's called fermented bread. So he started eating bread, and it became very popular because it actually tasted good. So people started making fermented breads with using this grain. But it all depends on the grain. Um, there's people say that out there that say, no, we're not made to make grain. But we've we've also eaten grains, not as long as meats and vegetables, but we've had we have eaten them. And if we're getting that grain, if we're getting a, a heirloom grain, and we're grinding it on a slow stone roller where we get the all three parts of the grain the, the not just not just the, the starchy part but the but the germ which is full of nutrition and also the bran we forget all of that and then we let that ferment and then cook it it's actually can be healthy too so we, but it's I'm always, I always go back to say as little as possible with grains but See, I would lots, I would caveat that with it's healthier or it's less toxic or right because exactly. what we've done through that fermentation process or sourdough as it's called is we've reduced the toxicity that's naturally inherent to wheat and that toxicity isn't there because of big eagle corporations it's because wheat is a seed and the seed needs to go to the ground to be propagated and unlike a lot of fruit or vegetable or seeds if you consume it that doesn't happen so like a, a seed in a blackberry or a mulberry 
right? It wants to be eaten. Now, it's I'm not crazy, and I don't think plants are you know highly conscious or whatever, and saying, "Gee, I hope he eats me." But I'm saying, in, in an evolutionary standpoint, a berry seed wants to be consumed by a bird, who will then fly somewhere, crap it out, it will land on the ground, it will be capped by the bird manure, it will make soil contact with a perfect little capsule of nitrogen, and it will grow. So it, it is it is predisposed to being consumed. There is no benefit to a grain being consumed. If you consume a grain, it gets destroyed in the digestive process, and it can no longer propagate itself. So grains have actually developed strategies through evolution to, you know, to at least push off some level of consumption, so they're not overconsumed. So some of them are left to propagate. That's why they're that's why they're sharp and sticky. Not just the the, the chemical reasons that they're you know not edible, but if you just take a wheat stalk and try to eat the top of it, you'll choke to death on it. And, and that actually is also designed to... So you think about a berry. Everything about a berry says, eat me. Right? It's, it's just like, please, look, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm red, I'm juicy, I'm sweet. Please come eat me. And it's, it's a stalk of wheat's like, if you eat me, I'll kill you. I'll, you'll choke <laughs> to death on me. But please walk by me so I can grab on you, stick you, irritate you, and you'll pick me off, and I'll propagate somewhere else. So when I look at it that way, I think evolution-wise... We might be able to make that into something edible, but in general, it's not designed to be consumed by human beings because without mechanical alteration or chemical alteration, we do not have the ability to consume it, where we can grab a berry and eat it. We can grab an edible green and eat it. We can club a squirrel in the head and tear into it, and once we get past the hair, we can eat it raw. I don't recommend it, but at one time before we discovered fire, that's what we did. But when we exactly. look at grains, they are the one thing humans have insisted on eating that's done everything from an evolutionary standpoint to tell us, I am not the food you're looking for. With the Jedi hand wave, right? It's it not me. <laughs> and, and as we look, and as we look at grains, it's, I mean, the main reason that people ate grains thousands of years ago is because there was some type of famine. So usually grains were stored. Starvation food. It, Yep. So they stored it, and if they had to, they ate it, and then if they didn't, they they grew the next. Yeah. And so well, it's you're also completely... because government could 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 manage it from a standpoint of absolute knowledge of quantity, and therefore it could be taxed, and it could be a store of value. You can't store lettuce for very long, right? No. Even something like potatoes and things like that. But the government can seize a portion of corn, the shell corn, or wheat, or teff, or sorghum or any any dry grain or rice or a, a legume they can seize that and they can put it into a stockpile they can parcel it out as a form of welfare so yep. you, you can't make sweet potatoes into welfare it, it, they don't bureaucracy is too slow to move even and they store sort of okay but you certainly couldn't do welfare with cucumbers and tomatoes right so if you look at what what was the state predisposed to sanction for developing and building civilizations, whether it was good for people or not, was grains because they could be stored, they could be transported, they could be doled out as welfare, they could be controlled, and they could have a, a very simple accounting. X amount of hectares produce X bushels. And you could know to expect that. So it fit the state model, and it's just what, you know, when you look at, you know, from an anthropomorphic standpoint you, or an anthropological standpoint, hunter gatherer societies are the antithesis. antithesis of a status society. They are very much, you know, an anarchy basically. They're a voluntary tribal societies 
and they have no need of such things. They actually see the you know, over-accumulation of things, is meaning there's something toxic with the person's soul, with their heart. Mm -hmm. And going from, yeah, from that time point to today, it's even, it's a thousand times worse because at least they actually stored the grain and used the grain at the moment they were going to eat it. But nowadays what they do, they, 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 they mill it on a still roller, take all the little nutrition that actually has and throws it out the window and just gives you a starch. They bleach that. And then they put it into a store where it'll last for absolutely ever. Not even an animal will eat it because they know the, the animal knows better than we do that it has absolutely no good to it. And then what we do is we go to the store, we buy that, and then we make some type of bread or something out of that, which is a thousand times worse than, than what, what, what would be to take that wheat, which stores well, grind it at the moment, ferment it, and then make the bread. So, yeah, so going back to how you were saying how today it's just so much worse I uh, know it's, it's incredible how and it all started about 150 years ago when the steel mill start, came about the steel mill came out 150 years and 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 uh, flour is pretty much the first processed food that we can that, that we started to use as human beings just about 150 years ago so it's it's so important that we grow I mean you talk about this all the time I mean that's gardening I mean if we want to eat nutritious food The best place to get it is our own backyard. That's the best place to get it. And that's what I recommend everyone do. Even, even if it's just a balcony, do something. So we actually moved. So I was living, <clears throat> before I was living, actually was, I had a small, I had a small farm. I raised uh, chicken on pasture. I was living in a small area. We had about three acres and we had a big garden. I mean, everything was, we decided to change lifestyles and we packed everything up, sold as much as we could. And, and we moved to Argentina. I'm actually in the moment, I'm in Rosario, Argentina. And, and we're living actually in a place where we actually have basically no land at all. I mean, it's been, that's been the toughest change. Other than that, it's been beautiful. It's, I can't complain at all, but we don't have much to, to grow. So I understand a lot of people that are living in areas where they don't have much room to grow. But what am I doing? I'm growing up. I'm using the wall to grow up and I'm growing as much as I can so I can provide the nutrient dense food to my family. I have a little piece of land in front of the house which I'm trying to take care of, which is hard because people step all over it, so <laughs> it makes it almost impossible. But we're growing stuff there too. We're taking what we have and we're doing the best that we have. So I recommend, first of all, grow some of your own food. If it's only 1%, grow some of your own food. Not only is, it, not only is, the, is, the, is the, the physiological effect uh, of health going to improve, but psychologically too. Psychologically, you're going to be able to see that seed grow. You're going to be able to see the fruit. You're going to be able to taste what food actually tastes like. You actually return to what food actually tastes like when it's nutrient-dense, when it has minerals and vitamins. It actually tastes so good. You'll be able to do that again and then psychologically it helps you be physiologically it helps because it's got if you have a live soil it's got bacteria that actually makes us feel better it actually see, actually causes an increase in the secretion of serotonin so we have just grow some of your own food um, and that's where we need to start if you can't get it if you can't grow all your own food with the majority of us can't I actually I interviewed uh Someone that was able to grow 75% of his food just working 10 hours a week. I mean, it blew me away. I mean, that's something I wish I could get to. Of course, I'll need more land. I'll need chickens like he does it. But that's just incredible. But start where you are. Grow some of your own food. 
And then try to get to know your local farmers. If you can't grow all your food, get to know your local farmers. Get to know their operation. I mean, when I had my farm, I invited people to come out. I wanted them to come out and get to know the process. I gave tours so they got to see exactly what their chicken did those eight weeks of life. And I let them know this is exactly what happened. I told them to take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. What does it smell like? It smells great. Yeah, this is what a farm needs to smell like. It needs to smell good. So get out there. Get to know your farmers. Those local farmers and buy from them and get as and get as local as possible. And then third and finally, if you have to go to the supermarket, stay away from the center lanes. Keep keep to the, to the outer part of the supermarket. And it actually is very important what you're buying. I mean, you can't go there and buy. A lot of people will they'll study out the new car, study out the new television, they'll study out all the stuff that they're going to buy, and they'll even pay just a little bit more to get that better brand. But with food, they'll just go and throw the cheapest thing in their in their in their basket. We can't do that anymore. We just can't do that well, anymore. That's an entrepreneurial to... lesson I've been saying for years, right? People, people will if they come under financial hardship, the first thing they cut is not luxury. They cut necessity costs. Exactly. So they try to get a lower price on their electric bill and save ten bucks when they're at a six hundred dollar a month shortfall, right? But but they'll still go out and they'll buy the next Sega Genesis or I I don't know any of that crap. So I'm sure that's. Like, <laughs> Ten thousand years old now, or whatever. But you know what I mean. They'll go out and they'll buy the next uh, whatever video game, or a cool surfboard, or you know the next piece of hot ham gear if they're a ham radio guy, or whatever it is. And they'll still buy that when they're trying to cut costs. And we just naturally seem to have this backwards mental process of the first place that you cut costs is in your needs. And, yep. and I think and it's, it's because they are, they are needs, and they are recurring, and that means I'm going to have to do it every month. So I, I think there's probably a logical reason to think that way to a degree. But when it comes to our food, you're talking about what goes in your body. And when I hear people say things like, I can't afford organic, okay. Well, first of all, you don't have to eat all organic, and that's not the best anyway, but it's a step in the right direction. And you start looking at, well, if you just bought organic vegetables, this thing is still a regular meat. How much would it, do you even know how much it would really cost you a month over what you're doing right now? And if you grew a portion so you didn't have to do it all the time, and they have no idea even what it would cost. All they know is when they looked at it, this pepper was $1.99 and this pepper was $99. That's all they know is that one pepper costs more. Well, how many freaking peppers are you going to eat? By the way, they're easy to grow. Exactly. And they don't even think about that. And we just had a segment on recently that I covered where, you know, there was this big thing out of Prager University with some tool out of, I don't know, some conservative group that was saying that, you know, organic food is no more nutritious for you than conventional. And my response to that was, I don't know that in general most mass-produced organic food is more nutritious for you, but I do know that it's less toxic, Right. And exactly. Those, those are that's 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 equally or if not at some levels more important because I can I can supplement nutrition some way or form. Right. It's very difficult for me to remove excessive toxin. Oh, like for sure. Glyphosate or whatever other thing they've sprayed on it or, or what have you. Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah, that's that's the one thing with with organic. Of course, I, organic. You can't even trust that term anymore. You can't even you can't trust any of the terms they say. You can't trust open range. You can't you can't trust uh, a lot of those terms. The government has changed them and made rules so lenient that yeah, you could almost. From what I've when I was raising my chickens, uh, an open range chicken was just having a. a 
I think it was a one foot by one foot opening in the, in the chicken hoop house with 10 feet by 10 feet outside of the area that could be concreted. And that was, that was considered open, uh, free range. I mean, give me a break. I mean, the, 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 the chicken doesn't even see a blade of grass his whole life. I mean, how can you consider that free range? It's not even close. So all those terms, yeah, they, they don't have much meaning, but they are better in that they can't use toxins. They might be nutrient poor, which the majority of them are, because they're also farmed in these, these mega farms, but they just don't use the, they don't use the glyphosate. They use other types of fertilizers that, that are organic, so they have carbon put into them, but they're at least less toxic. And that's, and that's what, and that's a good start. And like, just like you said, so if you're looking to buy food, make sure you're looking to buy food that's just a, that's not the, what you would originally buy because that stuff is worthless. It's worthless and brings, it gives you no nutrition. Or in other words, what your body's asking for. So if your body, your brain's saying, hey, I need, Vitamin B6 and vitamin B12 now. And then you, so you get hungry. You go out and you eat a hamburger. Well, you just made yourself more toxic and you didn't give your body vitamin B6 and vitamin B12. So what does your body say now? Hey, I need vitamin B6 and vitamin B12, but I also need, I also need vitamin C and I need omega-3 fatty acids. And, and so you go out and you eat something else that has none of that and your body gets, and your body tells you, well, I need this. So we're, we're eating. But we're not nutrient. We're not nourishing ourselves. So we're becoming. We're 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 starving inside because we're not giving our bodies what we need. And we need to make sure that when we buy food, we're buying food that has nutrition. There's certain things. There's certain things that our bodies need: vitamins, minerals, and there's and essential fatty acids that our body just can't make. And we have to provide our bodies with these things. So make sure we're providing these things. If we provide our body with those things, and of course we have a natural internal diet, we're talking to ourselves naturally, we, and we're sleeping enough, we're moving enough, our body does the rest. Um, that's what I'm trying to, that's my main purpose is really to help people understand that health is simple. We yeah, have the easy, yeah. we have the easy part. I, I, I mean, think there's a laziness too in people that say, well, I can't <clears throat> afford it or it's too expensive. So like a perfect example, example, I mentioned leaving meat out because organic meat is expensive. It's a, it's a, you know, an organic pepper or carrot is not that big of a premium over a non-organic, right? And obviously local or self-grown is better, but if you have to buy, you have to buy. But when you look at something like you can buy, you know, a big giant pack of uh, chicken thighs for like eight bucks. Right, and organic, you know, like two organic chicken thighs might be fifteen bucks. Okay, I can understand what you're saying there, especially if, if money's an issue. But have you even checked? So, like, we bought a, a half a steer. We split a steer with a, another person that we don't even know from a neighbor less than a mile down the road. The cow lives in the field down there. It eats grass. It doesn't stand in its own, you know, excrement in a cafo for the last, you know, four weeks of its life being fattened up. Um, we ended up with almost 150 pounds of meat. And when I paid the guy, and then I paid the processor, and it came out to a little over six hundred dollars with the two of them put together, dude, that's five bucks a pound. That's yeah. so. Tell me what meat, other than the cheapest ground meat, even mainstream factory farm beef, you can buy for under five bucks a pound. You know, sirloin, which is kind of your cheapest cut of steak, is is what nine, ten bucks a pound. Ribeye's like eleven, right? We got. Porterhouses, we got, you know, we actually got T-bones because I, I like the fillets separate. We got a whole fillet, you know, a whole one-side fillet um, cut up into steaks. We got 30 pounds of ground beef, 10 pounds of ground chili meat. I mean, 
when you start looking at it that way, like that's the cheapest beef I could possibly eat, and it's better than organic. I know I could I could have went up there and picked my if I cared and said I want this cow, right? It's just right there. But how many people don't even check to see if that option is available, and then they say, well, I can't afford it. Oh yeah, I mean that's why we need to be we need to make our our food purchasing it needs to become a, more, a lot more personal we need to take it a lot more, we need to take it a lot more we need to make sure it's something that's a lot more important in our lives than before unfortunately we have to we have to use more energy on what we're eating um, it's just how modern society is we have to be willing to if we want to reach our health potential we have to be willing to spend just a little bit more energy on finding where good food is and it's very very important but going back I was going I was talking about that that health is simple um, it really is I mean we have such a simple part of it I mean there's a lot of people that all they want to talk about is micronutrients my macronutrients what we what we need how to do this how to move better how to do we don't all we have to do is give those give those things that I just talked about just barely and our body does the rest I mean, our body is incredible. Our body, we, the more I learn about the body, the more I realize I don't know about the body. It's that awesome. Our bodies are incredibly resilient. I mean, you could smoke for 20 years. The day you stop smoking, your lungs start to recuperate. So if we give our bodies what it needs, the body will do the rest. We don't even have to worry about it. The body will do the rest. Our cells will do the rest for this, this huge ecosystem of cells, hundreds of trillions of cells. It's hard to even fathom what we are work harmoniously together and they divide those nutrients they do everything they need to do as long as we give it to them as long as we give it to them they'll work everything else out and they'll do everything and we will be healthy i can i mean it's it's just our bodies are incredible and i wish people would understand that because people they don't understand who they truly are and they go to a and they go and they try to seek help and the only help they get is from the outside take this take that take this no your body Give your body just these, 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 this, the, 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 the small amount of things it actually does need, and it'll do the rest. I can promise you that. And food, that's one of the, we must provide it with vitamins, vitamins, minerals, and essential fatty acids. We must provide it with that. So f- take that extra energy and find that stuff. And you will see a huge increase, not just your energy, your weight, who you are, but your health and totality. You will just feel so much better. Your, your gut health will, be, will just increase. We have a nervous system basically in our gut called the enteric nervous system that sends so many, so many uh, synapses to the brain. I mean, it, it works with the brain, there's, there's as many neurons in our enteric nervous system than there is our, in our peripheral nervous system. It's, it's so important, and it works constantly with our central nervous system. So if we're giving our bodies those essential nutrients, oh, man, our bodies will do the rest, and you will just, it's, it's incredible how you could feel. And I imagine you've talked about it, too, quite a bit, and, and when you started eating better, you, you noticed it, that pounds just started to fall off. You felt greater. I mean, it just... It just I, I was it just, eating half a cow for dinner. Like, I was eating rib that you could, you could, you know, Fred Flintstone would have went, that's too big. And I was <laughs> dropping weight. I dropped from 296 pounds to the 220s in six months, and I never went on anything I considered a diet. I mean, a lot of people do consider kind of primal paleo a diet, but 
I figure a diet is when you're going, this is how many you know Weight Watcher points I can have or how many calories I can have or what have you. When you just say, I'm going to exclude certain classes of food and then eat what you want, And what I found was, yeah, I was eating, you know, beef like a like a like a starved tiger in the beginning, but then I started eating less and less and less and less naturally. And it was as soon as the the excessive sugars running through my body purged themselves that you were able to experience the the satiating uh, aspects of, of of animal fats. When you eat rich animal fats, they destroy hunger. It, it absolutely destroys hunger. And I also used to have a lot of problems with, with hypoglycemia, right? I would get these blood – I wasn't diabetic, but I would get these, these blood sugar swings. And if I had forgotten to eat or something, I'd be just pouring sweat out of my head and shaking. And my wife would always say if we were going out on a weekend, like, you better eat something because I don't want to deal with you. You know, you look like a freaking incredible hawk and you're freaking out and tweaking and whatever. And, you know, after we did this for a while, she'd say, well, are you going to eat before we leave? And I'd go, no. And she'd do this is your – There's something different about you, you know. You don't you don't get upset anymore like that, and uh, you know I think that's it, it is just a, a demonstration. Like who tells these Aboriginal people you can't have too much food, right? And none of them are fat. People say it's because they're always running around and exercising. Well, you know we dispelled that myth here. They spend an awful lot of time laying on their ass and stretching. They do have a lot of movement and activity, but none of them are doing aerobics. Yeah, and they might dance around the fire at night, but they dance for like, you know, 15, 20 minutes and they're done. They're not doing the Jane Fonda buns of steel or some shit like that. And yet, they're in, unless we start subsidizing them and they start buying bags of flour and rice, they're all in general really awesome health. It's only when we kind of reservationize them that they get all of the illnesses we have. Exactly. Just like, <clears throat> like I said at the beginning, we're uh, excuse me, we're we're like those caged animals, but we're the ones that cages ourselves. It's it's crazy. Food is yeah, but food is is incredibly important in our health, and we need, like I said, we need to we need to spend more time on what we are eating, and like I said, grow some of your own food. That's not only is it not only is it it become just tons of fun, and you able to hang out with your kids and teach your kids if you're married and have kids. Not only that, it's just it's where you get the most nutrition. Nutritious and the most fresh food ever. Just imagine going outside, cutting some leaves of lettuce, going back inside, and eating that. I mean, it doesn't get much fresher and much and much better than that. It's just beautiful. Awesome, man. <clears throat> so we're really rolling along. So let's move on because we, we've covered basically movement uh, and we, we've covered um, diet. So another thing that you have here is internal dialogue. And boy, I could do a whole show on just that. In fact, I have. But how does that, you know, play into wellness? Because I think a lot of people have very toxic internal dialogues, and that's the problem. Yeah, it, it's it's a toxic, it's a toxicity. That's what it is. Uh, the majority of majority of people are toxic in their internal dialogue. It's it's very unfortunate that I think the last study that came out between sixty thousand thoughts a day and forty thousand of those thoughts are negative. I mean, who are we as humans to be thinking like that? Uh, the reason I call it natural internal dialogue is because It's natural to us. Um, us as humans, we're born. We're born just like we're born with skin, with organs. We're born happy. We're born with the ability to produce, to build, to give, to to give value. We're, we're born with all of these things, just like we're born with organs and skin and hair. We're born with these things. It's natural to us. 
But as time goes on, it gets beaten out of us through just the lifestyle or the way that we see life as it is. And it just gets beaten out of us. I, I, I always go back to our children. Our children are such great examples of what true internal dialogue are. I'm not saying they're happy all the time. They have their sad moments. But who is the first person to forgive and forget? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, who is... Yeah, he was the first. I mean, yesterday I was with my daughter. It was just insane. She came up and she gave me a hug, and it was like, oh my gosh, the world is just beautiful. I mean, the way the way she hugs you. I mean, she she really means it. She she gives you a hug, and she means it. It's so beautiful, and we lose that as time goes through all through our life, and we become like you said, toxic. It's a true toxicity. And what does toxicity cause? If it's chronic, it causes the chronic stress response, and we get sick. We just get sick. I would say in my clinic, the majority of patients I treat, because I don't treat a lot of accidents, the majority of my patients, they come in, never felt a problem, never had pain, never anything like that. They'll come, we'll start talking. And the moment they started to feel physical pain was after some crazy emotional trauma. So death in the family or a divorce, something like that, they started to feel a physical symptom. So it, it, it works. We're all we're holistic beings, and that mental suffering will eventually cause a physical symptom. And I see it so often in practice where people will come in, and I don't know why I'm feeling like this, and we'll talk. And it's because of that they become depressed. And depression, depression, isn't, isn't a, it's, it, depression is, not, is, not a, is not a, it's not a sickness. It's, 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 just, it's just a symptom of depressing thoughts. Yeah, that's all it is. If we, it's, it, depression doesn't cause depressing thoughts. Depressing thoughts causes depression eventually. So we, we need to somehow change how we talk to ourselves. We need to return to who we are naturally. And there's many ways to do that. But it's so important that we talk to ourselves in a natural way. And I know most people that are going through this, if there are people that are listening, they're like, no, there's no way out. And there's a reason why people think like that. It's something called neuroplasticity. When we, when our, our brain, it, when it forms pathways, it's like a river. It wants to flow in the fastest and easiest direction. So it forms these pathways, and every time we use this pathway, this, it becomes excited. This pathway becomes an easier and easier to use. And if we're thinking negative thoughts all the time, it becomes an easier and it wants to use that pathway. But it happens the same way with, with positive thoughts. If we're thinking positively, the same thing happens. We're going to form those neural pathways, and they become more and more acute and we'll be using those and it just becomes easier and easier and easier and that's how we form habits is by these neural pathways we'll do it enough where it actually becomes just something that we do normally but it takes practice it takes practice and it takes work just like building a muscle just like building a muscle we don't build a muscle in one day it takes a lot of practice and it takes a lot of dedication especially if we're at the point where we're thinking there's no return there is a return and it happens one day at a time, but it's not easy because that's how we are. We want to make that. We want to make everything as easy as possible. We're people of survival, and, and that's how we work. So if you want to get over it, and if you're having those hard times, there is a way out. And remember, it only gets easier, and it gets easier physiologically. It's not because it's it's all mental. No, physiologically, it gets easier, and you can work through it. But yeah, we as as human beings today in the modern society we live in, and what we see, we have these images thrown at us every day. We have these images of who we need to be, how we need to talk, what we need to look like. We're all completely different. We're all completely different. That's what makes this world so awesome. If we were all the same, it'd be a big 
it would be so boring. So we're all different. And we look at these images and we think we need to look like these images and act like these images. And, and people just get down on themselves. So as modern society continues, we see more and more in this. Love who you are. Self-love. Once you love yourself, it's so much easier to love people around you. So start there. Start loving yourself. And the most important, and the most, like I said, one of the most important ways to be able to love yourself is by serving others. Um, if you serve, that's the fastest way. That's the fastest way to start to love yourself is when you're in the service of others. So that's where you need to start is try to go and serve someone else. Most people that are in the worst of the worst, the way they recuperate is serving others because that will bring that self-love back. It will bring back that normal image of who you are, and you will return to talk just like your kids talked, just like you talked when you were young, and you'll return to that, and you'll have that natural, that natural internal dialogue. Also, a great way to, is, is keeping a, a routine, a morning routine is another great way. There's many different types of routines. I do certain things. I always recommend at least meditation and journaling in that routine to help you start the day right and hopefully end the day right also. But yeah, it's, it's incredibly important in the, the way we talk to ourselves today. And we need to get rid of these images that people think they need to be. You are who you are and you're a special person. And you being that special person, you have something of value for other people. So just be who you are and remember who you truly are. You're, you're happy. You have value. You can help many other people. And remember that that unconditional love is the basis of all true uh, traits. That's where it all starts. And you have that trait. It's in you. You were born with it. So we just need to work to, we need to, work to bring it back, bring it out again, because we lose it through the, the beating down of, of society. So when we look at all of this, where does chiropractic care come in as one of the four pillars? Perfect. So chiropractic care. Most people, yeah, when they think of chiropractic care, they think of, well, I was in a car accident or I got hurt playing basketball yesterday. It's usually, it's mainly used for, for uh, macro traumas, usually. And that's where chiropractic has kind of gone wrong. They've tried to fit into the medical paradigm and, they, and they're like, well, we can work with back pain or we can work with neck pain or headaches. And, that, and that's kind of where they've gone wrong. I mean, chiropractic is, is actually the, we work with the nervous system, the central nervous system, or in other words, the, 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 the most important organ in the body. So our nervous system primarily does four things. It controls every movement we make. It's involved in everything we sense or feel. Uh, nerves, they also regulate every body function. So we're talking digestion, circulation, respiration, reproduction, everything. And the, nerve, and the nervous system also, which I think is very important, most people don't realize, it helps us relate to the outside world. And that's a very important part. It helps us relate to what the outside world is. And, and the way we do that is through proprioception. So we have these mechanoreceptors, we have these, these, these receptors called proprioceptors and mechanoreceptors that kind of help us relate to what is around us. And we have two forms of movement. We have afferent movement, so all the movement from the outside going into the brain. And then we have the efferent movement, all that movement going from the brain out. So this afferent movement is a lot more important than the efferent movement. They're saying that between 3 trillion bits of information a second go to the brain, and about 50 bits of information gets to our conscious brain, so the cortex. So a lot less efferent movement compared to what the afferent movement is, or what actually is going into the brain. So when we have these joints that are distressed, so that's what, as a chiropractor, I work with joints that become distressed. In other words, stressed. So what are we doing? 
If we, if we have a distressed joint that's there chronically, what's it going to cause? It's going to call now. It's, it's also going to cause the activation of the sympathetic nervous system or the stress response. This happens, and usually this is due. This is decades. So these distressed joints are there for decades. We have no idea because there's no physical symptom. There's no physical symptom. We have no idea that it's happening, but we have this distressed joint for decades, and this slowly activates the stress response. We know the, the outcome of stress. We know. We already know it's one of the major killers of the world, or what causes a lot of the metabolic disease that we see in the world today. So, first of all, yeah, that distressed joint. That distressed joint will activate the stress response. But there's there's two things. There's that I like people to know. When we talk about health, there's two terms that we should know. We should know what nociception is and what proprioception is. So proprioception, like I was saying, it helps us know where we are in the environment. It's very important. So it lets us relate to the outside world. And then nociception is, is a stimulation of noxious stimuli. And it doesn't have to be pain. So a lot of this noxious stimuli gets sent to the brain, and we have no idea that it's happening. So this distressed joint is sending nociception to the brain and causing us to be stressed because that's what it is. It's the nausea, it's it's it, it it's the noxious stimuli getting sent to the brain. So when we when we have noxious stimuli activated, there's less proprioception and vice versa. When we're actually receiving chiropractic care, we're actually improving the amount of proprioception. In other words, decreasing the amount of nociception, which makes us overall healthy because we can we can relate to the outside world a lot better. Very important is that the majority of this proprioception goes through the cerebellum. The cerebellum now has been has been found that it's not just not, it not just only helps with 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 fine movement, so we're not choppy because of the cerebellum, but also helps helps us be sharp in our thoughts, helps us be sharp in our immune system, and helps us be thought in basically everything we do physiologically. So everything goes through the cerebellum through these proprioceptors, and the majority of these proprioceptors are, are found in the upper neck or the lower back. That's why we talk. The spine is so incredibly important, and it's it's really it's the organ that's left, that's it's that's always left to the last. No one even thinks about the spine until they have that excruciating low back pain where they can't do anything in their life and they have to go do something. But it's such an important organ that we should be getting it checked regularly, just like we get our teeth checked regularly. So we don't want our teeth to decay, but we certainly shouldn't want our spine to decay. So by getting it I checked regularly, I know there's regularly, a lot of dentists that do implants for teeth. I've never heard of a spinal implant. Like, your spine's bad. We'll just throw a new one in there. Exactly. It there's no, work that there's no such thing as a spine implant. I mean, you get one, so let's let's try to take care of it. And it's not just to take care of it, but it's, like I said, it's our overall health. So these distressed joints actually cause an increase in what is nociception. So if we have this increase in nociception, we're going we're gonna to be stressed, and we don't even know we're being stressed. So that, that's why the other reason, and this has all been this has all been backed up by by neurosurgeons and neuropsychologists. It has nothing to do with studies done by chiropractors. These are people that have done this through other research, and they've kind of proven the the philosophy of chiropractic that was given over a hundred years ago. But it's actually been proven that it actually does. It actually very actually is very very important. That's why I recommend people seeing a chiropractor regularly, just to make sure that yeah they're they're taking care of that spine, which is absolutely important. It, our nervous system controls absolutely everything that we do, everything that we do. So that's and that's why I call it the. That's why I include it as one of the four pillars. And like I said, I don't do this because I'm a chiropractor. I can't even treat you. I'm not going to make any money treating you. <laughs> But 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 what I do think is I know it can help you be the best you. 
I know it can. So if you find a wellness practitioner that, that not only treats you chiropractically, but is willing to talk to you about natural and internal dialogue, the way I call it, you can, what they can call it however they call it, also talk to you about the importance of food and how you eat, also talk, talk to you about the importance of movement. If they're willing to talk to you about all this stuff, they will help you reach your health potential. It won't be me, unfortunately. I'd love to do it, but they can and find them and let them help you reach your health potential. Because like I said, we're health practitioners. We're not sickness practitioners. We're helping you to stay healthy, and that's what we're looking to do. And that's that's why I love doing this. And everyone's different. Every one of us is completely different. If, if we weren't, I wouldn't be in this job anymore because it would be way too boring. I get to work with people every day that are completely different, and they heal completely differently by using these, these four pillars. They heal, but they do it in their own special way, and we work together, and it's just a, it's beautiful to see people return to who they truly are return to that potential that they truly have it's it's just it's just it's just exciting i love it awesome awesome so is there anywhere we can point to like and say here's a template of this philosophy on achieving wellness where you know maybe it's in place historically or in action right now well, I'm trying. I'm not 100%, but you know what? I do have a book out where I, I, I lay this philosophy out, um, and it's, it's a lot more detailed. I mean, if people want to pick it up, they're more than welcome to. I mean, it's on Amazon. It's called The Four Pillars of Health. I called it The Four Pillars of Health, where I talk about them. They can pick it up on Amazon, or they can pick it up from my website. My website's pastosbetterthisfarm.com. But I would say the people that are the closest our ancestors, and you've talked about that too. They were, they are the best example we have of what true health is. They, 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 and they did it naturally. They didn't have to worry about learning all this stuff. I mean, it was passed down from generation to generation, and they just did it naturally. And that's how we should return to do it. Do it naturally. Learn from our elders instead of throwing them into uh, old folks' homes. Take that information that they had and put it into our lives and continue and give our information, this good information, and give it to our progenie so that it continues and we don't lose it. That's the, they, they, were, they were the example. And if... The only thing they didn't have was chiropractic, but they still had people there that were helping them with 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 those joints. They're called huesedos. So they, but it, it, of course, it wasn't as it wasn't as uh, as localized and focused as chiropractic care is. But they even had that. So I mean, great example, our ancestors. That's I always I always tell people. I mean, the the first step is go interview your grandparents if they're still alive. <laughs> Learn from them because they have so much great information. If your great-grandparents are alive, even better. Learn from them, and then go from there, just keep on building. No, I think there's a huge case to be made of just the, the prior generations, and, and I think maybe the biggest case is um, you know the, the few isolated remaining hunter-gatherer societies that exist. And, um, if we look at the uh, the work of what was his name, the dentist, Doctor, um, that went around to all the. Nah, I, oh yeah. You fl- you slipped on one. Now I'm slipping on the other one. Weston Price, Doctor Weston Price. Yep, right? yep, Doctor. And you look at the commonalities from all of those societies. They were largely immune to any of these long term degenerative or inflammatory diseases. Um, they all had fermented foods in their diets. None of them had gyms and places to work out. Um, they all had a, a deep social connection with each other. And I think if you have that, you're going to have that positive internal dialogue that you're talking about. 
Um, and and again, they just didn't have these, you know, heart disease just wasn't a thing. Or like, like somebody died of a heart attack, they were like 99, you know, and they were pushing a goat over a, 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 a log or something. Well, you know, we're, we are finite beings at some point, but they just didn't seem to have the problems we do. And there's less of those societies today, but they still exist. And where we haven't screwed with it, it's still much better as from a chronic disease standpoint. Now, if you know, you mentioned modern medicine has a lot of things going for it. I always say if there's a yield sign in my spleen during a car wreck, please get me to a surgeon. I mean, please, right? So, like, if they fall off a cliff and break their neck, they're dead, right? And it's, that's just the way it is for all of us. You get hit by a gravel truck, you're dead. But when it comes to those those chronic lifestyle diseases, the incidence is just almost non-existent. Except because whenever I say this, people say, "Well, look at the Aborigines in Australia now, and they have alcoholism." Yeah, because they put they this is basically the American version of an Indian reservation. They give them exactly. a siphon, they put them in one place, they don't give them land to roam on, they don't let them actually live. But where we still have these people living in jungles and what have you, they are still at the pinnacle of what we would call modern health, in spite of the fact that they have very little support from a modern medicine standpoint. Oh, exactly. And talking about that real quick, that they actually did a study where they put those aboriginal people in Australia, they put them back into their original habitat. Oh, yeah. And the, I diabe saw that. the, diabetes, the diabetes went down incredibly. I mean, it was almost 100% went away instantly. I mean, it was just once they went back into their old lifestyle of eating kangaroo meat and, and just living how they lived before, oh, my goodness. Yeah, it completely went away, the majority of their, their metabolic diseases. So it's it, 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 great examples. And yeah, that's who we need to look to is our ancestors. They're, they're the almost, they're the ones that we that could show us the way for hard uh, for sure well hey i appreciate you being with us today ben and uh, i have a link to your website pastos verdes farm uh yep. in today's show notes i also have a link to your book called the four pillars of health uh and i suggest people maybe use that link to to find it if they're going to buy it on amazon because one will help support the show and two well um there's more than a few people that have used that title so you'll know you're looking at the right one but you're looking for the one by Dr. Benjamin Page, D.C., and that's the one I have linked. And I do appreciate you being with us today, Ben. Oh, man, it was a – I mean, loved it. Thanks for having me on, Jack. I just love talking about this stuff, and I was just, I'm just great the opportunity to talk to you because, like I said, you've – since the beginning, man. Since the beginning, I've been, I've been, I've been listening to you and learning from you and taking those things and trying to implement it into my own lives. And that's why modern survivalism is actually one of the lifestyle choices that I actually, I actually tell people that they should try to involve in themselves. Not only modern survivalism, but permaculture. I tell them use yeah. permaculture principles and put modern survivalism into your lifestyle because if you do that, you will be healthier. So it's, it's funny in, when I go to permaculture workshops or whatever. And the, the students there that sort of know who I am from exposure to that world, but they, they know me as this, like, scary survivalist guy. And they'll say, well, like, you know, we're not really into survivalism. I'm like, everything you're learning, every single thing, you, this is the <laughs> pinnacle of survivalism. You're learning to take care of your own energy needs, your own water needs. your own. What do you think survivalism is? You know? And, and it, yep. it, it's funny that, that a lot of times, like, people don't make that connection that, Taking care of yourself, like, well, I've always broken it down to the word, right? Survivalist. Survive means to continue to exist. Exist ist is a suffix meaning to specialize in. So a podiatrist specializes in feet, right? So survivalist specializes in continuing to exist. If you don't want to specialize in continuing to exist, that's fine. But I, for one, enjoy existing, so I'm going to specialize in it. <laughs> and, yeah, and make sure you have the best time doing it by staying as healthy as you can. <laughs> All right, man. Well, so hey, you can actually help other people. 
Again, man, I appreciate you being with us today, man. All right. Thanks a ton for having me on again, Jack. I appreciate your, I appreciate it. So great interview with a great guy and a guy really you could tell is passionate about what he's doing. It's the kind of interview that makes my life easy as well because he has so much to say. I can just let him talk. I wish I had more guests like that. Anyway, um, so if you enjoyed today's show and you like the work that we do, one of the ways you can support us is by doing your online shopping through tspaz.com. Just go to tspaz.com whenever you're going to shop online and uh, do your online shopping from there and that'll help us. And uh, at tspaz.com, one of the things you'll see is my review of items on a daily basis from Amazon. And today's item that I have reviewed for you is called the Incuview All-in-One Automatic Egg Incubator. And um, I did run this last year, I think in August, decided to run a little bit earlier this year. And before I tell you about the Incuview, I'm going to tell you why. I know a lot of you guys out there have your own chickens and ducks, and you like to bring in new birds routinely to your flock, to expand your flock, to bring in fresh egg layers, maybe you have to cull some out or things like that. And you know, hatching your own is a much less expensive way than buying from a hatchery and having them shipped. Plus, the baby birds don't have to spend you know, 24 to 48 hours in a box bouncing around in a milk truck. I do that. I order my birds. I, I is running a commercial operation. I need specific breeds and specific ratios of males to females. And uh, it's, it's a, a thing I kind of have to do. But I also like hatching. And when I was doing, and I, I also have a point where since I'm running a commercial operation, I have a lot more women than men. So my fertility rates on my duck eggs are relatively low. So that makes hatching a little bit weak. When I ran chickens, chicken eggs are so easy to hatch. And I would get hatch rates of, well, I'll tell you what. I ran three uh, hatches of 26 eggs apiece with chickens. And I got 76 out of 78 using the sinky view. That's a lot of new chickens for free. A lot. And the reason I think this is a good time, especially for you people that are of the egg-laying chicken persuasion, is most people get their new chickens in spring. And it takes chickens about six months to start laying eggs. So if you get chickens in March, right, you April, May, June, July, August, September, you're in September before you get any new eggs. When you when you get chicks now, if you don't have any to hatch yet, get, you know, this is a good time to order chicks. And let's say you get your birds hatched by August 1st, which if you get this incubator incubator and save some eggs up right now and you have fertile eggs, plenty of time to get eggs hatched by chicken eggs by August 1st. Then what you're looking at is you're looking at these birds starting to drop eggs in mid-February before most people even get their new birds for the year. And it's just easier to raise your chicks as babies, you know, in, in the end of summer, late fall, than it is in the frigid period of winter. And you can even wait a little longer. You, can, you know, fall's a great time to hatch. So, you know, put eggs in in September, and around September 21st, 23rd, you're, you're looking at hatches. And then you're still looking at having your birds start dropping eggs late March, early April. So it's just a good time to be thinking about that if you want to expand your flock. As far as the Incuview, it is, in my opinion, the best, by far, consumer-level incubator there is. It does everything. It has timers. Uh, it has uh, a really great way that it manages humidity. It's got all of the meters so that you can read everything. It comes with a very easy-to-understand instruction manual. You can see what's going on inside it, so it's great for kids to be checking things out. And like I said, I've had insane hatch rates with it. If I wanted to, to hatch you know, 90 eggs at a time, 
instead of buying a large commercial incubator uh, for you know 800 bucks or something like that, I'd spend you know another 200, 320 bucks. I guess there's 185 dollars a piece, and buy two more of these. That's how good they are. I'll also say that even though it's a little bit large, it kind of fits into a reasonable size box. It's very very lightweight. And some of you might consider partnering up on Zello, on the Facebook group, on the forum, what have you, and maybe you know using one of these in like a a, a share operation because you know you if you're going to incubate a run of chickens once a year, you you only use it for about three weeks, and all the rest of the time it can be being used by somebody else. So it would be a good timeshare item to consider as well. You can find all about it at tspaz.com or just go to survivalpodcast.com and check the. Uh, Uh, second post right under this one because I wanted to let you know about something else today. Uh, a friend of mine named Nicholas Bertner, we've had him on the air a few times here. He operates what's called the School of Permaculture here in Texas and uh, North Texas specifically over on the kind of the, the east side of the Dallas area. I think he's near Plano. And he is running a PDC that's going to start on July 8th. And it's going to run on weekends only like you go on the weekends. So if you're local, you might want to check that out. You get it over a quite a long period of time. You get the in-person experience. He is a fantastic teacher, guys. Nicholas Bertner you know, got his PDC from Jeff Lawton, but he wasn't a guy like me that said, I'll take Jeff's you know, remote course or whatever, nothing wrong with it. But he actually got on a plane and flew to Australia and, and spent two weeks with Jeff getting his PDC. And then he did, I think, an 11-week internship staying at the PRI with Jeff. So he's got it right from the horse's mouth, so to say. And as far as I'm concerned, Jeff Lawton is the best permaculturist on the planet today. And uh, he's you know, a direct teacher to Nick. So you might want to consider taking his course if you're in the local area. There's a post out about that. Again, it'll be the first post uh, uh, before this one on the blog. You scroll down and find it. With that, that brings us to our song of the day. The song of the day today is a song, I, I think everybody has probably heard this song, especially if you grew up in the 80s. Uh, it is called The Redemption Song by Bob Marley. And um, I think what a lot of people don't know about this song is this was Marley's last single before his death on May 11th, 1981. It sums up his life and what he stood for in his songs, Freedom and Redemption. Marley was a very spiritual singer who gave hope to the downtrodden in his native Jamaica and whose message spread to the United States and around the world when he became a star. I, I, I think that there's one line in this song that probably skips over most people's heads. And I'll admit, you know, when you're listening to like this reggae type of music, it's easy to not really understand all the words and just kind of groove on the beat and, and what have you and get every other word and whatever. So there's probably a lot of people that have heard this song, kind of like this song, but they don't. They don't know all the words, and it might be worth looking up the lyrics to it uh, so that you can hear all the words. Because once you know them, it's obvious what the guy's saying, right? Uh, but there is there's one particular line in this song that I think is the most important line. And it is, emancipate yourself from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. And this is from a speech by civil rights campaigner Marcus Garvey, who said in a 1937 speech, We are going to emancipate ourselves from mental slavery because whilst others might free the body, none but ourselves can free the mind. And of course, that's a harken back to physical slavery and emancipation from physical slavery. And think about 1937, you know, there were, there were, is less than a hundred years since the, the Civil War ended. You know, in fact, it was about, I guess, 80-ish, 82 years. 
So there might have been a Civil War vet or two around. I don't know. I mean, you know, there, there were definitely people that were alive during the Civil War and alive during slavery when this man gave his speech. And it actually goes back to his book from 1923, which you know there were people around. So that's kind of where, and, and you know, if you think about the way that the, the West Indies were settled, uh, these islands were slave islands. We think about slavery in the United States. We don't think about the slave trade that came through and the use of slavery in, in the West Indies, in the Caribbean. So that's on a lot of levels where Marley's coming from with this song. But I think it applies to all of us. Whether we've had slavery in our, our ancestral history or not doesn't matter. Because the number one way that we are controlled today, and this is a lot about what our guests and I talked about today, is the mental slavery. And a lot of it is that negative mental dialogue. I'm not good enough. I won't be good enough. Because all that leads to is I need somebody to do it for me. I need authority. I need help. And the interesting thing is, the way I see this coming from is people with slavery in their past saying, oh, you know, thank God Almighty we're free at last, but not letting go of the mental slavery that that's put them under. And so it's easy for people without that in their past to think they're immune from it. Folks, I've done whole shows on how we are slaves until we free ourselves. Because without mental sovereignty, there is no sovereignty. That's a Jack Spierko quote. Didn't realize how... Much I thought like Bob Marley, I guess. But that's the truth. And only you can mentally emancipate yourself. Those are powerful words that fit well with the show we had today. Again, I don't know how John Adam is almost clairvoyantly picking these songs to fit the shows, but it just seems to work out with that way. So listen for that line and listen for the others. Enjoy this and know that when... Bob Marley recorded this song. He knew he would soon be dead. He was terminally ill, and due to his Rastafarian beliefs, he refused modern medical treatment and chose to keep making music. He understood what his gift to the world was, and he wanted to do it right up till the end. That's something we can all learn from, along with the emancipation of our minds. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Pod Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our mind. Have no fear for atomic energy. Cause none of them can stop the time. How long shall they kill our prophets? While we stand aside and look. Some say it's just a part of it. Song of 